Hello, I'm Joe Pavia, and thanks for listening to my podcast, Station to Station. The podcast revisits radio interviews I conducted and news stories I covered early in my career. You can find blogs and photos on my website, joepavia.com. This episode features an interview with network radio reporter John McKay. Test, 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 check, one, two, check, check. Coming down in three, two, one. I was first introduced to John's reports while working at a small market radio station in Orangevale, Ontario, Canada, where I was the afternoon news anchor and contributor to a news magazine program called DC Digest. DC 103, the station, subscribed to the broadcast news audio and newswire service. It would later become the Canadian Press. The station received both audio and copy stories from a national, international, and provincial perspective. This was in the early 1990s, and John McKay was working at the Washington, D.C. Bureau, where he filed news stories about the events of the day. He was there at the time of the Persian Gulf War and Operation Desert Storm. Quoting from Thomas Paine, President Bush said, These are times that try men's souls. When he turned the shield into a storm, Bush turned the raging debate in this country from one of theory into one of grim reality. The souls of the barely resurrected peace movement here have been tried mightily. They feel betrayed that their leader moved so swiftly from sanctions and negotiation to outright war. John would eventually make it back to Toronto where he covered news from Queen's Park. He made it into my archive files again with this audio where he was in the middle of protests in Toronto that followed the verdict in the Rodney King case in Los Angeles. Here they go. The mounted police are starting to move around the crowd now. Here it comes. It's getting rough right in front of me. A big shoving scuffle. The police are getting tough. They've shown restraint all evening, and now they're moving in in front of this Loblaw store. Okay, okay. All right, there they go. No quarter now. Police have been urging this crowd to go home all evening. Now they're not going. A lot of these people aren't black. There's a lot of white people here, and they just seem to be looking for a fight, and now they're getting it. The podcast actually started from a previous blog about John's Canadian rewrite of the Billy Joel hit, We Didn't Start the Fire. It was during that conversation that we started talking about radio, news, and some of the big stories John covered in his career. Here's my interview with John McKay. What was it that sparked it for you to get into journalism? Uh, actually, it was funny because uh, I didn't at first. Uh, when I was a teenager, my friends all had tape recorders, and we'd get together and we'd make tapes and play DJ. And uh, when it came time to graduate, and I graduated, I went to Ryerson and took the radio television arts course, RTA at Rye, and we had the station, the on-air station to play with, CJRT, mm-hmm. which is now Jazz FM. Yeah. Uh, but I wanted to be uh, like a producer. I wanted to be an engineer, an operator, or record stuff and, and do commercials and jingles or operate for a DJ and or be a DJ. And so I got my first job at my hometown radio station. And as in most cases like that, the only opening they had was in the newsroom. Mm-hmm. Says, well, here's the newsroom. We need, we need somebody to do the news. And so I, I became a, a journalist sort of by default. I, I wanted to, I was primarily interested in broadcasting. And, as, and as, as soon as I got a job in a radio station, I loved it, but I had to work in the newsroom and not work with this jockey. So, and then, then it kind of grew on me from there because I learned at a small-town home radio station the effect that you can have. Yeah. Um, one, one day, the um, uh, Christian Raddick, the Norwegian, the tall ship, mm-hmm. was going through the 
well, and canal system, and I was doing reports on where it was at the time, and the phone lines were flooded. And uh, when I got off work that day, I went down, uh, I had to cross the canal, and it was, the traffic was jammed. There was just cars going up and down. Uh, people were parked wanting, wanting to know, where is it now, where is it now? And I realized that I was doing these reports on the air of where the ship was, and I was causing all this to happen. It was just unbelievable. And I realized, wow, well, the power. You know, you, you, you talk into a mic, and yeah. it goes out over the air, and people are listening in their cars, and it's, it causes a reaction. It just stunned me. So I, you know, I later I got a job at Broadcast okay. News. But, uh, yeah, that was my, my first gig. Oh, and uh, then I, I fell in love with uh, radio news because uh, I was doing things and it was reacting within the community, and I, I had no idea. Uh, and, of course, you hit the big time, and, and you're doing national stories. And, you know, <laughs> I, cool. uh, I first got to Ottawa, and the first thing that happened to me, two things that happened to me were Trudeau said fuddle-duddle in the House of Commons, <laughs> and I had to report on that without saying what he really said. Jeez. So, so wait a minute. So you heard the fuddle duddle, the exact fuddle duddle from the prime minister? Oh yeah. Well, we were sitting actually in those days before television. We were uh, in the common. We were sitting right up in the press in the parliamentary gallery, the gallery itself, the, where the press sit behind the the speaker's throne. And Trudeau mouthed this thing across the aisle, and this conservative MP was outraged. Uh, you know, John Lundergan from Newfoundland, and then he did it to uh, uh, to another MP, Lincoln Alexander. He did it again, and so I had just gotten there, and then we we went around. As soon as question period was over, we'd grab our tape recorders out of a broom closet and would run downstairs in front of the doors, and then scrum everybody who came out. And I said, "Well, maybe Trudeau will talk to us." Hey, kid, you knew here. You he doesn't talk to us. He doesn't, but he did. He went downstairs into the press interview area, and he said, "You know, what's the nature of your thoughts, gentlemen? If you say fuddle duddle or something like that, you know, boy." And again, I I went back and filed it, and it was amusing, but it became, you know, <laughs> this epic event. Oh, yeah. And another one was uh, this Czech dissident attacked Kosygin, you know, Premier, Soviet Premier Kosygin, on, on Parliament Hill as he was walking with Trudeau. And I was right there with my tape rolling. And Russian pig, go home! And he jumps Kosygin and, and wrestles him to the ground right in front of the Mounties and the KGB and Trudeau. So I ran back to the bureau, and I had all the audio, and it made it onto ABC Radio, and it went all over the place. You know, it was just a big story. Had the guy had a gun he, or a knife, he, he could have killed the Soviet premier right wow. on Parliament Hill. So this was my first introduction to Ottawa, and I thought, wow, this is going to be a ride. Yeah. What was it like interviewing Trudeau? Was there, was there an intimidation factor? There was for those. A lot of reporters come to Ottawa and want to try to score points. Mm-hmm. And you couldn't score points against him because he had a, a mind like a, a bear trap. Uh, and he knew, you know, he, you you couldn't beat him. Yeah. I always asked him questions that I really wanted to know the answer was and sensible questions. And he would answer them, mm-hmm. you know, politely for me. But there were guys, as I say, who were trying to score points. And he could just, he could cut them down. Uh-huh. Just, you know, they, they, they didn't have a chance against him because he, he was so... Uh, quick and sharp and, and uh, inscrutable, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you realize that whenever you covered him and traveled with him, you covered him. You, you don't cover. We we would go to conferences and pay very little attention because you know you had to, he might slide down a banister or do a pirouette, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and you had to go file these stories, and then you'd see that they would react the next day uh, you know, back home. You know? 
Uh, when, when he pirouetted behind the queen's back, our photographer got the only picture. Yeah. We were all out dining in a restaurant, and he came in with a eight by ten glossy, <laughs> passed it all around. I ran back to my hotel room and then filed a story about Pierre pirouetting at the palace. And of course, oh Ethan Baker got up in the house the next day and, uh, you know, was outraged by what he did. Yeah. Uh, it, it, Boy, the story just happens by default. You don't yeah. uh, really plan it. You know? Well, that must have been uh, quite the difference interviewing uh, Trudeau over Diefenbaker. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, again, a lot of things, big stories that, that I was amazed at how many stories happened by accident or straight. Uh, speaking of Diefenbaker, uh, you got time for this one? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was in yeah seventy nine. The Clark government was in power, and uh, in those days, I don't know what they do today, but in those days, Stats Canada twice a month released statistics very early in the morning. One on the consumer price, you know, inflation figures. The other, jobless, the unemployment rate. So somebody in the bureau had to get up like at five thirty six in the morning, and get into the office for six thirty when Stats Can trucks would drop off these bundles of press releases in front of the press building. So I'm there, and I get there that morning, come in the office with my coffee, and the guy is just sitting at the desk, and he looks at me and says, what are you doing here? I says, I'm here for Stats Canada figures. He says, that's tomorrow. I said, what? He says, you got the wrong day. Uh, I said, you mean I could be home warm in my bed still? And he says, yep. And just then the phone rang, and he got very intense, and he started taking notes, and I swung around the desk and looked over his shoulder, and it was Diefenbaker's press secretary or aide, uh, Diefen died during the night, and they found his body in... in slumped over his desk in, in his uh, whatever his bed his working room there his study mm-hmm. and uh, so I, I I grabbed a pen scribbled a couple of notes and I ran down the hall into my announce booth threw the mic switch open and said Ottawa calling Toronto Ottawa Toronto and the guy comes on what are you doing there and I said never mind roll the tape Ethan Baker's dead so he rolls the tape I ad lib about twenty thirty seconds I remembered he'd been invited to go to China the following month. Uh, just reported that they found him in his pajamas and bathrobe, something, da, 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 da. I got his age wrong, I think. I said 80, and it was 81, or something like that. Uh, but I got a quick bulletin, and they moved it out at about 10 to 7, or 5 to 7. And uh, CFRA in Ottawa came on. We have very tragic news this morning, exclusive John McKay on Parliament Hill. And out goes the report. And I just imagined news directors all over the Ottawa Valley being awakened. <laughs> I said, get in there. And here I am, breaking the story, and I got my bulletin out to radio stations before my CP colleague had managed to get his bulletin out. Uh, and here I have a, an exclusive scoop. Now, what are the odds in an entire career that you come into the office on the wrong day and happen to be there, you know, for an early morning bulletin like that? And uh, I, I had the whole thing to myself, and then the next hour I did another one, and then at 9 o'clock Clark's cabinet was meeting at the launch van, so I ran up there and got all cabinet ministers in reaction and i was busy all day just filing all this stuff and i was alone that week in the in the bureau because uh, uh, my colleagues was, was on vacation wow. but I, I often wondered about that how does that happen how do you wake up yeah that is on incredible the, on the wrong day in all of your life and happen to be there and, and as know. tragic as the story was or sad as, as the story was yeah the adrenaline rush that must have been you must have oh felt. you know I'm unbelievable, but I've always pondered about what the odds were yeah. of, of being in the right place at the right time. Just you know, and then I got lots of congratulations, but I said it, it wasn't anything I did. I didn't plan. I wasn't clever enough to be there. It just happened. Yeah. A couple of the biggest stories that I ever 
had, like even out of Washington, were, were totally accidental. Uh, I, I remember the famous uh, face slap where um, Sandra Gottlieb, the ambassador's wife, slapped the face of her social secretary when Mulroney went down to Washington for a state visit with Reagan's government. Mm-hmm. They had a, a White House dinner, then they had the reciprocal dinner at the Canadian embassy. And she was very stressed, and she slapped the face of her social secretary. And uh, as a pool reporter, the CP was uh, and, and BN were the, the only ones there to see it. And uh, I, I filed the story, and I I didn't lead with it. I said, "Oh, there was a big dinner. They had a cake, and they wished Rooney happy birthday." And I said, "There was just one unfortunate event when the ambassador's wife slapped the face of one of her staffers in, in front of us." And uh, and I filed the story, and I, I went to bed. And then the next morning, the phone started ringing, and the thing came up in the House of Commons, and I had no idea that it that it became this huge controversy. I, I, my print colleague, she filed a story, and they spiked it. They they didn't use it because uh, they said it was sort of hearsay because the only our photographer actually saw it, and then he told us, and then we went back as a pool and told the rest of the press corps, and a lot of them were reluctant to carry the story because uh the photographer didn't get the picture oh. but anyway it it became a huge a huge controversy at the time yeah. and i had no idea i said jesus i buried the lead well, <laughs> <You know? laughs> but i broke the story because yeah. they transcribed my voicer and uh put it on the bn wire and uh you know anyway so that, that that's the way it goes were there any other breaking stories that you ran into or that came to you i should say well, uh, as I said, the pillar of my beat at the time was free trade, and it happened late on a Saturday night. Uh, they were, uh, and this is the days before we had cell phones. We didn't have, you know, laptops, digital file. You had to find a phone somewhere, you know, unscrew the mouthpiece and put your alligator clips on and feed a piece down the phone line. Well, and I think of today, they can just do a compressive voice report on a laptop, email it into the office, and then it comes out studio quality at the other end. I mean, oh, God. And I had that technology back then because you'd, you'd be filing from someplace in Africa and uh, the phone system was primitive and, uh, you know, the quality was barely usable. Uh, but this, the free trade thing happened late on a Saturday night. We'd been staked out all day. Um, and finally, uh, the agreement was reached and there was a thumbs up from a window up and then they, they came out and they announced that they had a deal. And I ran from, this is next door to the White House, and uh, I ran down the street to a payphone and called the office at 5-2 and, again, breathlessly filed this piece that the deal had been reached. I I think they might have got it on the air. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I got it out, and then I had to go back to the office at the AP, and all of a sudden all the AP guys were coming out. Were you there? Were you there? Because they weren't paying any attention, but... Yeah. The announcement come out that there had been a free trade agreement, so they wanted all of my tape. So I'm doing stories for AP Radio. I'm doing it. We had ABC Radio, uh, and there again, I was, you know, the only guy with all the sound. Yeah. Uh, so I filed a bunch of stuff, and then the next morning there was formal press conferences and that. But you know, uh, again, how many radio stations were operating at 11 o'clock on a Saturday night? Mm. Uh, but the thing is, we got it out, and, uh, and that was, you know, had I, you know, had I missed that one. 
which was, I said, the main reason I was in Washington for all those years. And then that would obviously, yeah, Saturday night you mentioned doing all what radio stations are up. That would have been long before the 24-hour yeah, news but BN cycle. was doing those newscasts of their own, you know, that stations right. yep. plugged in. So uh, I, I would like to, I never did find out, but I assume they got it on the air. Hmm. Okay. Uh, and then, yeah, to come back to the AP office, and then all of a sudden these American reporters are coming around, and you got stuff, you got stuff, were you there? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got it, I got it. And uh, give them clips of, of their guy and yeah. clips of our guy, uh, but that's 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 rewarding uh, when you when you were there and you're the only one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so no other can. I mean, CBC was there. Mike Duffy was there for for CBC, but uh, you know, uh, I, I was it for for radio okay. for just about anybody. How long were you in in the Washington Bureau for broadcasting? Um, I was in Ottawa at the Parliamentary Press Gallery for 15 years, from uh, 71 to 86. Then they went to Washington, 86 to 91. Those are five and a half years. And the pillars, and it's funny you mentioned this about Gulf War and that, because the, the two pillars of my beat were going to be the free trade negotiations, which I covered in, until the agreement, the free trade, Canada-U.S., which later became NAFTA. And the other was acid rain legislation, which was slowly making its way through the congressional meat grinder and, uh, you know, was affecting, you know, Ontario mm-hmm. and Quebec. And once those two stories were, were kind of finished, I, I was called back to Toronto. But I had to make a decision when I got there that most Canadian reporters working in Washington sort of emulate the main American stories uh, that are going on at the time, but presumably with a sort of Canadian perspective. Uh, one of the big ones when I was there was the Iran-Contra, you know, and Oliver North and all of that, and I did some of that. But I, I realized, I think, I decided when I got there that instead of just imitating, you know, and copying the big American stories, that I would do bilateral trade, uh, and that meant going to a lot of congressional committees and and listening to trade negotiations on on Canadian issues. They called the bureau the Hogs and Logs and Fish and Chips Bureau because <laughs> we would deal with well, fresh chilled frozen pork, uh, softwood lumber, which was a big issue before I got there, and it's still a big issue today, uh, debates over softwood lumber. Um, you know, uh, coastal fish stories, PEI potatoes, and uh, you would do a story that was really targeted to, if it's a grain story, to the to the Maritimes, or, or I mean to the prairies, uh, St. Lawrence Seaway issues, which are big for Ontario and Sault Ste. Marie. So you would really make... Uh, local regional stations happy when getting a story from Washington about their particular mm-hmm. uh, trade issue, but the rest of the country didn't care. So I was I was making stations happy one at a time. You know, <laughs> a Michigan congressman one day proposed uh, an agreement with Canada to twin the locks at the Sioux. So I did a story about uh, Sault Ste. Marie. The stations in the Sioux were thrilled. My print colleagues laughed at me. They said, oh, Big scoop, McKay. You're doing a big story about uh, about twinning the locks of the Sioux. Well, the next day, uh, the Sioux Star called Canadian Press and said they wanted a wire story matching the voice report that I had on Sioux Radio the day before. So mm-hmm. they, they sheepishly came to me and said, can we transcribe some of the stuff you had on that Sioux St. Marie story that we laughed at? <laughs> you know? So right or wrong, that, that was my main issue. My main coverage was doing... Um, you know, local trade stories that hit certain regions of the country. Um, and the difference between being a Canadian reporter in Ottawa and being one in Washington is like night and day. Mm-hmm. 
in Ottawa, you're on the defensive. I mean, the news stories are flying at you like a blizzard. You reach up, you pull one down, you process it, you file it. And unlike, I think, today, uh, everything passed through the House of Commons, and especially the question period at 2 o'clock every afternoon. So you'd cover question period, and you'd come back with a half a dozen stories or more. And uh, that, that kept you busy and very little time to go on the offensive, mm-hmm. uh, especially in a small bureau where we had like two or three people. There was very little time to do investigative or offensive to go after stories or even to do whimsical features. Mm-hmm. I got to Washington, and I was busy a couple of days you know, uh, most of the time, but there would be days where there was nothing to do. And I I was happy to have that daily notebook, uh, McKay's journal. I, I filed two minutes a day on whatever I wanted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then some days I developed a tremendous respect for columnists who have to come up with a column every day of the week because I some days you just, well, you do a movie review, you know, or something. Yeah. <laughs> or you had the time, say, I got nothing to do, I'll diddle around with this. We didn't start the fire or, or you know, uh, a lot of Civil War stuff. I was in the middle of Washington, the Civil War battlefields, Bull Run, Antietam, Harper's Ferry, uh, all these places were within a 20 miles of Washington. So I, I, uh, I really got into Civil War stuff and visiting battlefields and doing features like that. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of rewarding because I wasn't under pressure, you know, mm-hmm. to file on a, on a deadline like like normally it would be. Just listening to you mention NAFTA, you know that's that's all the talk now about you know rejigging NAFTA, and there you were. Well, at the I know. Beginning. I remember at the time uh, when they settled the free trade agreement, and Simon Reisman was our uh, tough negotiator. He 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 got the auto pact in place in the '60s, and he was our negotiator for free trade. And then Reagan came out and said, "This is a stepping stone to a continent-wide from from uh, the Yukon to the Yucatan." And he was furious. No, this is our deal. It's a private deal. It's got nothing to do with expanding. And yet, eventually, that's what they did. They brought in Mexico, and uh, it was against our chief negotiator's wishes. <laughs> that was for sure. You talk about Trudeau. You talk about Diefenbaker. What other leaders, uh, prime ministers, presidents, did you meet? Did you were you in the company of? Uh, in in Washington or in Ottawa? Uh, either one, either place. Yeah. Well, of course, there'd be all of them. You know, in Ottawa, in Washington, I remember uh, Trudeau and Reagan being together. Uh, George W. Bush uh, was at the White House, and he came hanging around. Jimmy Carter. I mean, you, you, the Queen. I mean, all of these people would be part of your. Uh, I covered all the royal tours as well as uh, election campaigns, and you'd get to meet the Queen and Prince Philip and the royal family. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it was, you know, that would be off the record, but it was uh, sometimes intimidating. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But sometimes you'd find out that they were just Prince Philip one day. He, uh, he, uh, we met him in, in Boston. I was on the Bicentennial Royal Tour, and, and we had one of those off-the-record cocktail parties where they come and you can talk off the record with them. Philip comes in and says, I guess I can say this now after all these years, but he comes in and he had just been up to Montreal at the Olympics where Princess Anne was in horse racing trials and I, I can't remember the controversy at the time but he comes in and he says well they really fucked things up at Bromont didn't they and I said whoa we really are off to <laughs> oh, I wish I could file this yes. you know so, and then and years later reporters broke that agreement so you obviously tape machines while well, you didn't have cell phones but tape machines were off limits and you just went and schmoozed with right. everyone right like the gallery press gallery dinner every year nowadays oh. you see the like the american one and a lot of the canadian one too are a broadcast on c-span or cnn and uh, uh they're not off the record anymore they're broadcast on cpac i think here in canada 
when we went up there, uh, we had our press gallery dinner, and everything was off the record, and they would say some amazingly outrageous things. Um, some of the people you never expected to be really funny were amazingly funny, like Bob Stanfield, who was always sort of wooden, and, and Trudeau was very bad at it. He, he couldn't deliver a joke, mm-hmm. uh, a, a punchline or anything. Uh, his idea of humor was, I'm I'm calling an election tomorrow. I'm going to see the governor general in the morning. And we all said, what? What do we do? Is this true? Is he just pulling our leg? <laughs> you know. <laughs> but those days are gone. Uh, the, the, uh, the agreement between the press and uh, politicians on both sides of the border is now you know, yeah. on the record. So, oh. uh, it, it's kind of sad in one way, but in another way, I suppose it's more honest. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, uh, did it give you the the sense, though, with the off-the-record meetings that, you know, did you, uh, not you personally, but uh, could, could that have been the time when a reporter could have established a relationship with a politician? But... Not so much a relationship, but an understanding of what they were kind of really like. And, uh, uh, you know... To, to see uh, political leaders sort of be self-effacing and uh, saying things that they never would say admit on the record, like uh, if they screwed something up. or uh, uh, and Tr- Trudeau wasn't like that. Trudeau was not self-effacing at all. Mm-hmm. But the other guys would be, even the governor general, he, he would have a you know, an almost a, a, a shocking little speech that he'd make, you know, and say, wow, you know. And so you'd realize that, so that there was a personality behind the political facade. It was a time to let your hair down and, and, and be open, and that was very edifying because you could see these guys, uh, in some respects, how they really were um, when they didn't have to worry about, uh, you know, blowback of things that they might say. But uh, again, there came to a point where things that Mulroney said and, uh, and Prince Philip said ended up being reported on, and that was the end of it, you know. Do you think, though, that a lot of people could have gained a new respect for some of the the self-effacing and uh, openness of a of a politician? If it well, was reported? Uh, we did. I, I saw it when I saw like Obama mm-hmm. uh, delivering a great monologue, a comedy monologue at those, you know, uh, uh, White House, you know, the uh, press gallery dinners. Uh, and it's, you, you saw who was funny and who wasn't. You know, like Donald Trump couldn't be funny if he tried. And I think, uh, you know, remember the one a couple of years ago where Obama poked fun at him? He was at the dinner, and, and he's talking about how, you know, he's deciding about sending troops into battle, and and, he, and meanwhile Trump is deciding who he's going to fire off uh, his TV show. Uh, and, and, you know, <laughs> You could just see that you know Trump had no sense of humor. He had looked very grim when he was being mocked by Obama. Uh, couldn't take a joke, you know. Wow. Uh, so you, 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 that is open now. Everybody sees that. Mm-hmm. But uh, what was the transition like from Washington back to Canada? Uh, very depressing. First of all, uh, I had it made in the shade there because we got our pay in U.S. dollars hmm. and an expense account, and as I said, the freedom to explore and to work on feature stories, uh, when I came back, they really didn't know what to do with me. Um, I, I sat around for a year, and they would send me out to any stories that were happening in Toronto, and I was filing, you know, doing something different every day. Uh, and then they sent me to Queen's Park, which a lot of people said, well, gee, that's weird. John's getting a demotion, you know, going, I've been in Parliament, I've been in Washington, and then I go to the legislature, you know. But and I soon realized at Queen's Park that if you look in a paper like the Toronto Star, 
there are a lot more stories coming out of Queen's Park than there are out of Parliament mm -hmm. because a lot of the stuff provincial has to do with everyday people, their health care, education, you know, school, uh, all the issues that, that Queen's Park covers are, have, have more more interest to, to the people. So although my potential audience went down, I, I got a lot of coverage in mm -hmm. Ontario because the legislature is really closer to the people yeah, yeah. Uh, than, than what goes on in Parliament Hill. Uh, you don't see that when you're there. You think you're at the center of the universe. I'd come back from trips with Trudeau, and people say, gee, not much happened, eh? And I said, geez, what are you talking about? I thought, <laughs> you know, I thought it was a lot of good stuff there. But that, that, that's, that's the way it is. So, that, so I was a couple of years at the legislature, and then uh, I got this offer to jump, ship, jump over to the print side, and I jumped at it because I, I was always a big movie buff, a yeah. TV buff. So I knew a lot about movies. They, they knew I was very knowledgeable about film and TV anyway. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So uh, I, I, I did. I fit right in. But the you were at Queen's Park uh, covering Ontario stories during the Bob Ray era, which was yeah. uh, quite the transition point as well for the province because it was the first time that the province had ever had a, an NDP government. Oh, I know. I know. And... Uh, I was still in Washington when the election happened, and uh, of course, as usual, we were asked to, there are usual think tanks and places where you call to get reactions, so I called this guy, he says, well, the Ontario election was held last night, yesterday. Oh, yeah, okay, what happened? Well, NDP majority. What? <laughs> Just freaked them all out down in Washington. Hmm. And uh, when, when I got there, yeah, it was uh, one of those things that must be like, the guys at the White House press corps now are trying to deal with Trump, trying to deal with a socialist uh, government. And, and, of course, he couldn't get a lot of the things passed that he wanted. He promised provincial auto insurance and then found out realistically he couldn't do that. And, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, all the things that he... And then, then, you know, he tried to bring in the social contract and even his union colleagues bailed on him. Uh, uh, union leaders refused to support him. And then when it came time for re-election, they came around a little too late and, mm -hmm. uh, Tried to do the salute, you know, together, uh, but it was too late. Yeah, he was, he was gone. <laughs> he was doomed. I guess I've forgotten the pecking order, if you will, if I could call it that, of of what what is determined to be the pecking order of where a reporter is. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which you know, I I don't know. Maybe to me, it's just it's what's the big story happening wherever. Yeah. Uh, but when you break a story and you see that it has a reaction, it doesn't matter. When I was at Seahaw Radio and I did a story, as I said, and I left the office and saw it in the outside world, uh, that that circle, you know, that it, what you say into a microphone goes out and into radios and then causes reaction. I mean, you know, one Saturday night I was calling the cop shops and seeing anything happen, and they said, yeah, there was a hit and run, or there was an accident up uh, in Port Colborne. Uh, we're looking for these two young kids who uh, had a, an accident and then drove away. And uh, so I did a story, uh, put it out, that, uh, this, this action up on Sugarloaf Hill. And then weeks or months later, I was covering court. And these two kids were they're nice kids uh, before the magistrate. And they, they talked about how they didn't know they had been in an accident until they heard it on Seahaw Radio. Hmm. And they turned themselves in. And the judge, you know, sort of let the, so I'm filing a story on these kids who turned themselves in because they heard my report on the radio, and then I was turning around and reporting their court appearance on the radio, and that just blew me away, you know, like, wow, because of me, you know, 
and you knew they were good kids because they were listening to See How. Yeah. Uh, everybody, everybody <laughs> nice else was listening to KB, WKBW in Buffalo, the rock station. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they were naive kids, but you know what I mean. I mean, it's, it's a small thing, but it it it, uh, and you don't realize the impact you have. Mm-hmm. And so the same thing happened on a bigger stage with something like the face slap, uh, and you're the only one who files on it. Uh, and it, it causes this international incident, you know, and just uh, blows you away. And, and as I say, so often I myself did not have any idea of, of the severity of, you know, the reaction to the story that I filed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it, it happened several times uh, in, in my career. And I think, wow, geez, sometimes I just didn't know what the lead was, you know. <laughs> <laughs> do you miss it any days? Some ways uh, you do, because I envy the the technology they have today to file from anywhere in the world, where, where we had a very difficult time sometimes overseas, traveling with Trudeau in Nigeria once. And uh, I was in my room, and they said, the phone system is so primitive, don't bother to file. Well, there was this old phone hanging on the wall in my hotel room, and it looked like something from the days of the hand crank. And just for the fun of it, I unscrewed the mouthpiece, and then I'm spraying all these wires. Uh but I, I placed a collect call, and it went from Madugari in Borno State down tonight to Lagos. And I got a collect call. I got a call in, and I had recorded a couple of pieces. Trudeau had arrived there and got this huge welcome, a big parade, and he had arrived in this this backwater of, uh, of Nigeria, you know, and thousands of school children. And I said, how am I going to get this out? And I got through. And I put the clips on, and I finally said, turn it up. And I had my volume wide open, but it got through. And uh, you had to buy time in advance, uh, 15 minutes. And at the end, if you weren't filed by then, the phone would go dead. But I got it filed, and I got the phone back together, and I went down to the cafeteria or the press room or the lunch or whatever it was, and I said to the other person, I just filed. And they all freaked. They said, what? They told us we couldn't. So everybody ran to their rooms, tried to file. And the and the guys uh, and the telephone system, like in Lagos, just said, "Oh, this is too much," and they just they, they most of them couldn't get through because they weren't going to work that hard. Oh, but uh, again, I was just lucky. I somehow figured out how to patch into this primitive telephone and and got got a, got a feed out. So sure. Trudeau went there and got a a big state dinner. Mm-hmm. He took us to places that you know. Sana, being in Sana in Yemen, you, know, you, you went to places that other politicians and prime ministers would go to London, Paris, Rome, you know, New York, and, and he, he takes us to places like uh, um, Muscat, Oman, and Sana, Yemen, and we went through a, a, a lot of strange places in the Middle East, which was just fascinating, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, but trying to file out of those places, like, you know, wow. today would be a far different story. I'll bet. Uh, we were lucky when we got to Beijing because the Americans had already been there and they had set up the phone system. And I called from Beijing, and the guy on the other end was amazed. He says, it sounds like you're right next door. I says, great quality. And I said, well, you know, great. <laughs> Roll tape. <laughs> but, uh, right on. Yeah, yeah. And I saw the evolution of, 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 of that technology. And after, just uh, at the time I left uh, is when a lot of it started coming in. I was one of the first multitaskers before the term was invented <laughs> because uh, I had worked with BN. And then I jumped over to CP, which is hardly ever happens. And I went from radio politics to print showbiz, you know, went to the Academy Awards and did all kinds of stuff. But I was still able to do radio. Mm-hmm. 
And ironically, at the time, the, the guild, the union, didn't like the fact that I was multitasking because I was taking somebody else's job. But, you know, I, I went I went down to the Academy Awards, and uh, for example, and, and that was the first time I in 1998, the, the Titanic was the big winner, James Cameron, uh, and uh, that I had the uh, uh, the program on my laptop to compress audio, and I was I was filing leads to the Canadian Press to the wire service, and then I was doing radio reports. And that was the first time on. It was like it was like twenty, thirty steps you had to take to process a piece of audio. Again, you'd take your cassette recorder, you'd plug it into the laptop and then cut together you know, paste together a wraparound oh, and a couple of actuals and then feed them down the line to Toronto. Mm-hmm. And I, I was so impressed, wow, and it comes out of studio quality at the yep. other end, you know. <laughs> uh that was the first time that technology, but it was so complicated to do, you know. But I did both and nowadays uh, a CP reporter has to tweet uh, a quick lead, you know, if he's uh, at the scene of a breaking story, uh, take pictures, shoot some video with his camera, uh, file, uh, you know, uh, to the wire, mm-hmm. a bulletin, file an audio clip to BN or CP rate, whatever they call it now, I guess this Canadian Press's audio service, um, uh, photographs, video, I mean, and, and CP reporters these days are filing on four or five platforms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot less depth, but uh, uh, you know, and it's wide all assortment of platforms. And I, I just can't imagine being at the site of a breaking story. And who do you who do you file to first? What do you do? Yeah, yeah. A quick a quick tweet, and then uh, you know a, a quick radio report. A, a send a photograph. I mean, you know, all in one. And, and as and, you know, new, newspapers these days are dropping their photo departments because you know uh, their reporters have. A cell phone in their hand that could do everything. Mm-hmm. I just read a story about a guy at WTOP in Washington who now does all of his reports with his iPhone. Yep. He can record audio at the event, do a voice for intro and extra, piece it together uh, on his iPhone with, with the right app, and then email it into his newsroom. Yep. And, you know, we used to carry these Sony recorders around and viewers and, and uh, you know, have to cut and paste and then find a phone somewhere where you could take the mouthpiece apart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Much of the chagrin of a lot of people, what are you doing to my phone? No. We had two phones uh, and a bank of phones at, at Uplands Airport in Ottawa where we had taken a, one of those preserving jar wrenches and we'd crack, because pay phones were sealed. Yeah. Regular phones, you could unscrew the mouthpiece, but pay phones were sealed and we, we cracked them and we knew where they were, so... We could unscrew the mouthpiece and uh, <laughs> file something from the airport if we had to. Jeez, that's funny. That's I, I totally forgot about that. That the, with I, the clips. I stood in a phone booth in Manitoba once, and I uh, the phone did come apart, and I put clips on, and I was standing in a puddle of water, and I got a hell of a shock. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> but people would look at one one day at a major event. I uh, we scoped out the site and found the nearest pay, nearest phone unscrewed the mouthpiece and kept it in my pocket. Uh, so after the news conference was over, I'd run to the phone, put my alligator, and a, and a print reporter was ahead of me. He picked up, oh, Christ, what happened here? This phone's no good. <laughs> put the clips on, talk through the tape recorder, uh, and then hit play and, and file on a piece of audio. So how but, long uh, were you with the entertainment reporter for uh, Canadian Press? I was about a dozen years. I, in early 90s, uh, I, I jumped over. I got an offer to, because I, I had done a couple of, feature stories about movies and it got me the job at uh, I jumped over to CP Mm -hmm. and 
I'm surprised it worked out because uh, often if you're a radio reporter and you suddenly got a newspaper job, it's a little bit different. I was sort of going in the opposite direction of mm-hmm. <laughs> journalism in those days. But being a CP reporter, and if I covered things like the Oscars or Junos or any any of the Canadian things, uh, I had I dual filed, you know, uh, and uh, I was still able to do that and cover both. Did they provide uh, but, training from uh, the radio writing to newspaper writing? No, I had I had filed a few newspaper stories, and I pretty well knew that, you know, you put the he says at the end of the sentence instead of the front, and yeah. uh, I, I, I I grasped the uh, the style. The only thing that always bothered me was uh, the inverted pyramid. Mm-hmm. Uh, you write a story for the wire, and it has to be all the important facts up at the top. And then in declining order of importance, so that any paper can cut off whatever they want from the bottom to the top, and then squeeze what they have into the space they have for their newspaper. Um, in radio, you know, you you write a lead that the radio, the newscaster reads the lead lead to your uh, voice report, and he delivers the hard lead, and then you start talking, and then you build to the uh, actuality that's really the heart of your story, the clip that you put in the middle, the voicer, mm-hmm. the audio uh, insert. And then do your extra. So it's a different, different style of writing. In CP, you can't ever have an ending to your story. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it has to be, you know, able to be cut off at any point for the bottom up. Uh, whereas with a radio report, you know, you you come full circle and yep. slide it off, and uh, you don't have to worry about being cut off but then again you have very little time when you're down to 30 40 seconds mm-hmm. at best, you know although i had 600 words 700 whatever to write a budget story for cp mm-hmm. uh when the clippings came back very few of those stories went all the way to the end yeah and uh i remember i did one story once where i had this great ending that brought the whole thing around to the beginning of my lead again but it it got cut off in most papers mm-hmm. and it said you can't have an ending you know you have to write you can't write a, a well-rounded story you have to write it top down yep. and uh, pack everything that's most important into the top because sometimes you'll only get the first couple of paragraphs uh, printed and th- that was always frustrating mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, unless it was something very featureish that ended up in a weekend section of the paper and you got like almost a whole page and I was, oh that's cool you know yeah 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 and then you had to pick your artwork and get the photo department to run out pictures or graphics or whatever to go with your story um but uh, the multitasking thing, oh, as I say, I don't envy yeah. reporters, <laughs> CP reporters, especially you know my successors yeah. this day, because the Canadian press reporters are doing radio. They were never very good at radio at the time, um, and they tried to get some CP reporters to do voicers, and, uh, and, and it was sometimes very difficult for them. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me. Oh, no, it's, it's fun reminiscing here. Uh talking about all that business about multitasking, you know, and uh, doing features there. Former Radio Network News reporter John McKay. I've posted the complete audio of John's work that I used in this podcast onto my website, which is joepavia.com. You can listen to the complete reports there. Thanks for listening to Station to Station. I'm Joe Pavia. If you like the podcast, hit like on iTunes or drop me a line on my website at joepavia.com. Check out other podcasts, blogs, and photos that I've posted to the site, or you can listen to the podcast especially on iTunes or SoundCloud. 
Subscriptions to the podcast are free. If you follow this site, you'll receive instant notification via email of a new post. All you have to do is go to the bottom of the homepage and enter your email address. You can even sign up a friend. That's all. We'll see you on the next podcast.